The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. As we continue on in the Upper Room Discourse, it's been a wonderful privilege to go through this. We work through the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Today we'll begin with verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Amen? (laughs) But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. Uh, Today we see some final words of encouragement as we end this particular chapter. And Jesus' encouragement to his disciples, Jesus uh, expressing some of his own feelings about what's ahead. Even with a little mild rebuke, we have these words of encouragement before they begin their walk out of the city toward the Kidron Valley, across that to the base of the Mount of Olives where they'll spend time at the Garden of Gethsemane. Some have said at the end of this chapter where he says, rise, let us go from here, that could be they started that trip. It could some suggested that chapters 15 and 16, he spoke along the way. He may have stopped at the temple with them. Uh, and shared some of these things we don't really know. But still, you read in these verses after this long comfort chapter, uh, you see that the disciples are still confused, and they're still sad, and they're still distracted, and don't have a clear understanding of what's going on. Because he spent much time talking about his death, and they um, have a uh, they're beginning to have some understanding that he's going away, and that it will include death. Just recently, he said to them in John 12:24, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, and they have an understanding that he's talking about himself." Uh, John 3.14 and uh, much earlier, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Over and over he makes these statements, John 8.28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that one relates specifically to this particular passage today. 
John 12:32 and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. And so that and many many other statements that's beginning to sink into them that um he's going away. He's told them enough. And then we get to chapter 14. And it's nothing but a chapter full of promises and comfort. And the comfort is uh, things like he assures them he's going away to the Father's house. And when he goes to the Father's house, he's going to prepare a place there for them. And when those necessary preparations are completed, then he's going to come back and get them and bring them to him. And the way to get there is himself. He is the way. And he's going to make the way known to them. And he was going to give them what they needed along the way in order to get there. What great promises. And when he's gone, they won't lose anything in the mission. The mission will continue on. In fact, when I'm gone, you'll do even greater things, he tells them. Whatever they needed to do their work, all they would need to do is ask in his name and they would have it. And not only that, he was going to send the third person of the Trinity. He's going to send another helper, a comforter, a teacher, a guide, a protector for them. Round the clock, 24-7, he'd be with them. And then the text from last week, verse 18, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. And he goes on to make promises in those uh, four verses, few verses we looked at last week in 18. I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's talking about the resurrection there here. And this is, this is early Friday morning probably, maybe late Thursday, uh, that he's talking to them. And so in just a couple of days, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come to you. I'll see you in a few days. I'll be resurrected. And not only this, you'll be resurrected too. You get to experience it. He'll return to them with full possession of an endless life, an eternal life, for which they're going to get to take part in. What a great promise. Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you'll live also. That's the promise of their resurrection. And in that day, verse 20, you'll know that I am in the Father. And that's another promise. You'll know. And on that day, when I'm resurrected, everything that I've been teaching you, everything I've been telling you, you're finally going to say, yeah, he was right. <laughs> I get it now. I'm a little confused right now, but when that happens, you'll get it. Verse 21, 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, once you get it, you'll have my commandments, you'll keep them, you'll love me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest to myself. There'll There'll be an even deeper understanding of who I am on that day. What a great promise. And not only what I told you at the beginning of the chapter, am I going to prepare a place for you, but look at um, 20, uh, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, sorry, no, 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. You're not only the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're the temple of the Trinity. We will come to him. And not only was he says at the beginning of the chapter, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. But guess what? You are going to be where my father and I abide as well. What awesome promises. He makes all those promises of comfort. And he makes all those promises of encouragement. And then what does he say at the end of verse 27? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Same thing he said in verse 1. I'm giving you peace. What a great promise. My peace I'll give to you. We'll see that on display in these verses today. And yet they're still troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So he gives them some encouragement here, starting in verse 28. First, encouragement to joy, as opposed to despair. Encouragement to joy. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you if you loved me. Implication is, but you don't. You would have rejoiced. Implication is, but you haven't, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You've heard me say I go away. Seem to be understanding more clearly what that means, that he's leaving them. And that seems to have been one of the chief reasons for their trouble and, and, and their distress, their security is going away. We don't really understand how he's going away, but our, our security, the one we placed our hopes in, the Messiah is going away. Well, we do have an advantage here, don't we? We're, we're, we're looking at this on this side of the cross Remember Josh Dickert here last Wednesday night, for those, of, for those of you that were here. Josh was talking through Isaiah 53, and he's doing his best to talk about Isaiah 53 from Isaiah's side of the cross. And he just can't do it. He just makes the leap right over. Because that's where we live. That's where we are. We're on this side. And on this side, we have hope. On this side of the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. On this side of the cross, those of us that are believers have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We sing about that cross. We sing about the glory of that cross. We sing up here in the 
In Christ alone I glory. In the cross of Christ I glory. We sing, O wondrous cross. We sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. The meaning of his death is very clear on this side. But think about, try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. It's not so clear on their side. Paul declared it. We preach Christ crucified. Why? Because Paul was on this side of the cross. We preach Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Galatians 6, but far be it from me to, to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our glory. We've been set free from the bondage of sin because of the cross. And the disciples, they were, they're standing there on the prophecy side. Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. They're standing on the prophecy side. We get to look on the fulfilled prophecy side. It's much different. And from their side, they're very, very confused still. Hey, he says to them, stop and rejoice. He's been teaching them. He's been helping them. He's been comforting them. And yet all hope is lost. Our Messiah is going away. You're going away, but what's going to happen to me? It's just sinful selfishness. Yeah, you're going away, but what's going to happen to us? After all the promises of just this chapter, not even the rest of the promises of Scripture, all they could see that he's leaving and nothing else. They're sad. They're grieving at that loss already. They're gloomy. And they're selfish. Just like you and me. We're selfish people, aren't we? Remember when this whole discourse began back at the beginning of chapter 13? What's going on? They're, the disciples are arguing with each other as to who is the greatest. Talk about selfish. They haven't moved that much further from them. And they're arguing with each other and discussing this so much so that they pretty much ignore Jesus and he ends up being the one that has to wash their feet. We're selfish disciples, aren't we? So he gives this mild rebuke. You've heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you'd loved me, you would have rejoiced. When I said I was going away, if you loved me, you would have Rejoice If you truly loved me, and the clear implication is that they don't at this point, they'd be glad that he's going to the Father. The departure of Jesus Christ from them should be just a fountain of joy to those disciples. And yet it's not. Christ going means Christ coming. It's easy for us to see that now, doesn't it? He says, I'll come again. So he's, he's promised them, but it just hasn't sunk in yet. Christ going 
means Christ coming. Actually, two things on here. Christ going means Christ coming. And Christ going means Christ exaltation. That's the completeness of verse 28. And for both reasons, he has to go. And for both reasons, it should create joy in his disciples. So it's hard for them to believe that the Messiah's leaving was best. It was best for Jesus. It was best for the disciples. It was best for you and me. He wants his disciples to realize this. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. He cannot mean that they didn't love him at all. Believe what he's saying here is they didn't rightly love him. They didn't uh, intelligently, based on everything that he said, love him. Otherwise, they would have rejoiced because my going means the completion of my work. They loved him only in ways they could understand. But then why does he say at the end of that verse, for the father is greater than I? Well, we can't take that out of context. In the early church, there were the heretics, the Arians, who uh, they're named from the, the heretic Arius who taught that Jesus was a created being, or the Socinians, they were Gnostics, uh, who took out of context that Jesus was not divinity, Jesus wasn't God, or that Jesus was just a lesser God. And this has become a favorite verse of Unitarians and uh, modern-day Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults, who deny the deity of Jesus and would make him less than the Father. And they use this sentence. This is their this is their hallmark sentence to to teach that Jesus Jesus himself taught that he was a lesser god, that he was our created being, uh, important but lesser. And if you take it just out of context, for the Father is greater than I. That's exactly how it looks. But in context, it's entirely different. He's already said, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Why would he say this? What does this mean? How does it fit with the rest of the verse? Well, it certainly can't be isolated out of context. It has to fit with what's going on, what's being said here. The Athanasian Creed says it best and and succinctly that Christ in no doubt is equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. You see, the enemies of of, of, of the doctrine of Christ's divinity forget that those of us who are Trinitarian, we still maintain the complete humanity of Jesus Christ as strongly as we maintain the divinity of Jesus Christ. And yet never shrink from admitting that while Christ as God is equal to the Father, he's inferior to the Father here on earth in the incarnation. 
And it's in that sense that he says, my father is greater than I. It's especially being spoken at a time of his incarnation, his humiliation. You see, when John at the beginning says, when the word was made flesh, the apostle Paul in Philippians 2 is talking about when he was made flesh, he took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of a slave. He took on the form of a lowly one. This is a temporary inferiority that's taking place here. And a phrase, a term that we learn in seminary, this is not an ontological discussion. Ontological meaning, meaning his being or talking about his essence. This is a positional discussion in this particular verse. He was in his humiliation here on earth, but he's going back to the Father and will be exalted in glory. The Father is greater in office or glory than the Son was in his humiliation. This is a positional discussion. It's as if the Son... Just here on earth, your son comes to you and he says, hey, I got a job. I'm moving to Washington. I got a job with the president. And the father, you know, is kind of anxious about that. He finds reasons that it might not be a good idea. But the son says, but dad, it's a wonderful opportunity because the president is greater than I. Well, no, we think they're just they're both men. They put their pants on the same way. They're both created in the image of God. They're men and they are equal. Yes, that's true. But the president is greater than that young man as far as his office is concerned. The president is greater in the glory of his executive office. And that's what we're talking about in this passage when Jesus says... I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I'm going to be restored back to that great honor. In this sense, the Father is greater. But Jesus is not saying that he's greater in nature. That's the heresy that we see so rampant these days and have throughout church history. Our problem and the disciples' problem is that we look at this from purely human perspective. So what Jesus means here is that compared with his earthly humiliation where he put on humanity, the Father dwells in greater glory. So the Son of God rejoices that he's going back. He tells his disciples, you know, if you if you'd paid attention... You'd be rejoicing now, not living in fear, because I'm going back to my Father. Wonderful hymn I found this week. Jesus, hail, enthroned in glory, there forever to abide. All the heavenly hosts adore thee, seated at thy Father's side. There for sinners thou art pleading. There thou dost our place prepare, ever for us interceding. Till in glory we appear. Enthroned in glory. Rejoice with me. 
Now, for John, he knew that for Jesus, the issue was never one of who was in control. That was the role of the Father. But for John also, the the issue of the full divinity of Jesus Christ and his equality with the Father was never in question either. That was the entire presupposition of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. We see that constant refrain, John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 10.30, we saw that already. I and the Father are one. John 17.21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And back to that Philippians 2 passage, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then the ultimate confession of Thomas in John 20.28, my Lord and my God. I see him pierced in his side. I, I see the holes in his hands from the nails. My Lord and my God. James Boyce says, We ought to apply this to all who die in the Lord. Now pay attention to this. It is true that they will not assume the same glory as Jesus. He is God and they are not. Nevertheless, their death will mean mean their exaltation and perfection. For us, their passing is loss. We miss them and are poorer for their death. On the other hand, we rejoice that they have completed their race and are now with Jesus, having been made like him. That hits home, doesn't it? Secondly, we see encouragement of fulfilled prophecy. Now I've told you before, it takes place. This authenticates Jesus' role, his office as prophet. I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Thomas did that, right? He sees uh, his hands and he sees his side and, and he, what's he say? My Lord, and my, I believe, my Lord and my God exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He made the same reference back in 13 verse 19 in talking about Judas. He's talking about Judas' betrayal. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I've told you plainly that I'm leaving you. I'm about to die on the cross in order that when I do die and go, you may continue believing, not have your faith shaken. Paraphrase. Unselfish concern for his disciples. The Lord revealed these future events so that when he died, oh yeah, he said that. Listen, this is just a few hours a day. He was going to prove this verse true just in a couple of hours. Oh, yeah, he told us about that. When he rose from the dead, oh, that's what he meant. When he ascended, go to be with his father, 
Oh, yeah, that's what he meant. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, oh, yeah, that's what he meant. When the Holy Spirit brings to their... Listen, John's right. John's probably 90 years old when he's uh, writing this. And some people have thought, now, how could John, this many years separated from these events, how can he remember word for word what Jesus said, word for word what the disciples said, word for word? Well, Jesus has told him the Holy Spirit's going to bring back to your remembrance these things. When they do greater things than Jesus. Oh, now I know why he said that. And so. And now I have told you before it takes place. So then when it does take place, you may believe. Alexander McLaren said he gave himself to prepare the disciples for the storm that forewarned they might be forearmed, that when it did burst upon them, it might not take them by surprise. So he does still about a great many other things and tells us beforehand of what is sure to come to us, that when we are caught in the midst of the tempest, we may not bait or lose one jot of heart or hope. I shared the good things when he, de- when, when he was raised, when he ascended, when the Holy Spirit came. But he prepared them for the evil that was ahead, too. The promise of verse 29 is that the true believer will experience these things which Jesus spoke about. And that experience, those things that we experience that, 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 that Jesus warned us about will declare the veracity of of his words. That he is who he says he is. They couldn't imagine not having him there physically with them. But he kept teaching that it would be better that they be apart from him. It would be better for them if he goes. The Holy Spirit comes. Why? Then they'd believe. Now, when he spoke these words, they probably thought they believed. At least they believed all they understood. They still didn't understand the reason for his death. They didn't understand that his death would be followed by a resurrection. They didn't understand that the gospel of salvation founded upon his death and his resurrection. Those two great truths would be preached throughout the world until he returned. And it was the work of the Holy Spirit that would lead them to understanding these great truths and cause them to believe, as it's the work of the Holy Spirit that causes you to believe as well. This should be our faith also. Jesus was telling them, disciples, he warned them, whatever was coming, no matter how tragic it it appeared, it was for their own good. It was for their own growth in faith. And this is true for you. Whatever tragedy comes your way, it is for your own good, for your own growth in faith, and for blessings in your lives, and for blessings in the lives of others. So it must be for all of us. 
Whatever disturbs us is sent by God for our good. And so we should have that peace. He talks about my peace I leave with you. Even in the most adverse circumstances. Even mass murders. Leon Morris said, Jesus' words will have greater effect in the future. When the things Jesus speaks about actually come to pass, the disciples will recall the words and believe. They will trust their master all the more when they see his words verified. And we, we, we've already had that explained to us way back in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you, do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it, was take, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now listen, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Another affirmation of his deity his divinity. Thirdly, we see encouragement about Satan's limited power. When he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. You know, that's where I think when, when, back in 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. You know, it doesn't seem to be a hint of any anxiety here. Does there? He just casually says, we're not going to talk much longer. The rule of the world is coming. He doesn't say Judas and the Roman guards and the Pharisees are coming. He says, the devil is coming. And certainly he knew that one day the Apostle Paul would write that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. It's only the devil. He's at the bottom of it all. People are simply Satan's tools. He's the prince of the world. Isn't it great that being the prince of the world that Jesus, the incarnate Christ, did not have to ask Satan's permission to come? (laughs) Snuck in as a little baby. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's the prince of the world. And certainly, if the world had known, Paul says this, if the world had known that it was the prince of the world that was leading the charge here, they would not have crucified Jesus. But John tells us in another place, 1 John 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so he's gearing up for his final blow. He's going to test the second Adam at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to test the second Adam on the cross of Christ. 
But Jesus declares he has no claim on me. Look at that end of that verse. He has no claim on me. He has nothing on me. He has no hold over me. How could he? Jesus is not of this world and he's never sinned. Leon Morris says, although sin gives Satan his controlling power, he cannot control Jesus because there is no sin in Jesus. No lust, no greed, no selfishness, nothing in Jesus that Satan can use to destroy him. And so that's the difference in him and us. Satan goes to Adam and Eve and he finds weakness in sin. Satan goes to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and all the saints and you and me and he finds imperfection. Comes to Christ and he finds nothing in him. The perfect lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen. This past week, past three days, I've heard the word evil, I think, more than any other time in my life, even more than after 9-11. Could be because the evil was displayed so close to home, in my home. And we can politic this this tragedy and we can try to place blame But the truth is, it's Satan. He's at the bottom of it all. A most tragic, heartbreaking horror that that cannot even be put into words except by saying, it's the devil. The pain for those families... The pain for that church, they're worshiping today. And listen, last Sunday, they left that service downtown on Calhoun Street. And they were thinking, can't wait till next Sunday to hear my preacher preach again. And he's been snuffed out just like that. Pain for those families in that church. The pain for this community. All God-fearing people were attacked by the devil. Satan himself. The enemy, the adversary, not a devil with the face of a 21-year-old boy, but the prince of this world. If I can jump back to verse 28. Those families are grieving at their loss, but Jesus reminds us that for believers, there must be joy because they're with their father. No matter how they got there, no matter how violent it was, or whether they get there through sickness, or whether they get there naturally through old age, rejoice! The believers with Jesus. And lastly, we see encouragement of obedience, fulfilling his mission. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. If I ask you the question, if I just threw it out there, which I'm not doing, by the way. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Man, we could come up with a lot of responses, couldn't we? 
many, many responses. And chances are most of your answers would be right. But ultimately, why did Jesus go to the cross? It was the Father's will. And Jesus loves his Father, and so he does his Father's will. It's a great verse to end with on Father's Day. Isaiah 53, was it verse 10? I'm not sure what verse it is. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. We must remember that the guiding principle that directed every step of the Son of God took was that I do as the Father commanded me. Obedience. That's the ultimate proof of his love for his Father. Obedience. And this is the only place in the Bible, only place in the Gospels, where Jesus says, I love the Father. Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So to paraphrase it all, simplify it for us all, shorten what I was going to say, J.C. Ryle says, I do all I am doing now, this is his paraphrase, and go to the cross voluntarily, though innocent, that the world may have full proof that I love the Father who sent me to die and am willing to go through everything which he has commanded me to go through, innocent as I am, without one spot of sin that Satan can lay to my charge, I willingly go forward to the cross to show how I love the Father's will and am determined to do it by dying for sinners. Jesus wants the world to know. He's going to the cross. Doesn't result in abandonment by his father. It results in conformity to the saving will of the father. It's as if he says, come on. Let's be on our way to Gethsemane. I've got an appointment with the devil. I don't want to be late. And let me remind you, too, that Satan is in the will of the Father, too. And Satan is being manipulated for God's ultimate purpose of redemption for mankind. So if you're here today, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You came on a really good day. Because this was your day. To hear about the Son's love for the Father, obedience so much so that He hung on the cross, He died the cruel death as a substitute in your place. So you wouldn't have to. Obedient to death, as Paul says, the grand example of the Father's doing the Father's commandments. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Elizabeth died this week. 
He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It's a principle that should underlie everything that we do. It's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Hey, guys, let me go. You can't keep me. My goings going to gain something for you. My going is going to gain something for you that you cannot ever, ever lose. What a truth for believers to live by. Recognize it. Live on it. Jesus took pleasure in obeying his Father. How much more should we? So he says at the end of this verse, rise, let us go from here. I'm serious, rise. <laughs> Let's pray. And we'll sing a closing hymn in a moment. You have questions about what's been said. Anything that's going on in this place today, I encourage you to make your way to the back. Pastor Greg and other elders will be back there as um, they'll receive you, pray with you, and spend time with you. You do that as we sing. Father, we pray for our, those who are struggling with a walk with you today, might turn from their lives of sin and turn toward you. And rejoice, as Jesus instructed his disciples. And we know, Father, that when one comes to you, the angels of heaven are rejoicing. What joy to know you as Lord and Savior. Father, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. We make mistakes that are public. People wonder about our walk with you. We know we're sinners. Forgive our sin. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of the cross. May we proclaim it when we go from this place. In the name of Jesus, amen.